0: that their preoccupation and everything that they do would be the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we need help as always, and so we ask for that help now for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you have been with us these past few weeks, you will remember that we've been working under the heading of biblical leadership in the local church. Quite a few comments after the sermons each time, and they're all helpful and good ones, and I'm glad that this topic is of interest to us because it is a crucial time in the life of the congregation, as we said a few weeks ago, and we want to understand that this necessity of taking our gaze and turn it to the nature and absolute necessity of leadership, but specifically the past few weeks, eldership. Last week and this week, our attention has been to what God has said on the qualifications of eldership. And this should come as no surprise to many of us. In order to learn what God has said about elders, we went directly to what God has written concerning elders. No place else really to go than the scriptures first. And we would do well to remember that we said last time that this list of qualifications are for elders particularly, but they are for all of us Christians generally. Because what we have in this list is essentially a basic list of basic Christian behavior. And so we would do well to understand that. Those of us who belong to Christ here this morning, we could be absolutely certain that this is where God is taking us. So then in Titus 1, we quickly discovered, and I'm very glad that we discovered this right off the bat, that what God values about leaders is not what many people value these days. And the qualifications that he gives us there by the pen of Paul, God doesn't value education. He doesn't value wealth. He doesn't value intellect. He doesn't value status or success or exceptional giftedness or, you know, business savvy or you don't have to be Mr. Adventurer or Mr. Personality or Mr. Wonderful or even we say in the times, you don't have to be Mr. Cool, okay? God is not looking for the wow factor in his men, I think it's an important lesson. We, we live in an age where entertainment is a, of a high value. And so we think that what happens out there, when we come up to here, we somehow have to do that. The message of the cross is a message that is dripping with blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. And every doctrine that the Bible has, it would always attach itself to the cross in an empty tomb, and Christian leaders carry crosses, and Christian leaders, if they have uh, some inkling about what they do and do it halfway decent, they're going to have some scars. So in this list, God does not look for what so many prize. What God prizes in the church for leaders, specifically elders, are men of character, men who are do-gooders, rule-keepers, not actors. Because what is before us here are a description of a person who is morally and spiritually a person of character. Not characters, but character. What a a man is in secret, Robert Murray McShane, what a man is in secret in his private duties is what he is in the eyes of God and nothing more. So this is not all about visible persona but rather it is the hidden life that also indexes our spirituality and will reveal eventually our actuality. So if an elder is going to be a man of spiritual maturity who is clear on what God has said to shepherd and guard the flock, if an elder is going to be constrained by the Scriptures with his attention to the sheep, full attention to the sheep that he has been entrusted to, And if an elder is going to protect the church from false teachers, teach the people sound doctrine, visit the sick and pray for them and pray for and lead the church in a way that Christ has clearly already said, then Paul says he's going to have to be a man of character. He's going to have to be a man of integrity. And integrity works itself out as we looked at last time and marital fidelity, family harmony, and self-mastery. That's what we talked about last time. Now, this cannot and shouldn't give the impression that the elder is flawless and faultless because, as we said, only Jesus is flawless and only Jesus was faultless. It's important, I, I think it's important, if you expect your elders and your pastor to be omni-competent, that they have to be really good at everything, that is a s- extremely serious mistake. But what you should expect... Uh, and your elders are men who are more and more. This is uh, 1 Timothy 4.15. Let your progress be evident to all men who are more and more being fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ of the scriptures. So last week, we kind of dealt with the vices that we ought to avoid. Now we have to look to the virtues that we are to embrace. And right off the bat, verse eight begins with hospitable. He must be hospitable. Philozenia. Philo, love. Xenia, stranger. A lover of strangers. Now, strangers in the ancient world who would travel or come to difficult places had no real safety nets to fall into. And roadside inns at this time were typically scarce, they were dirty, they were unsafe, and they were unpleasant. And so Christian homes were to be thought of as, if you would, safe houses. And the Bible underpins this notion of Christian hospitality in a lot of ways, Uh, Hospitality here has the idea of mending, of helping, of protecting, of nursing. This is uh, home health care, if you would, of the spiritual kind. Because this hospitality is not showing off your wares in your home, however fabulous they may be. But this is about giving and pouring into these strangers our very lives. Consequently, every list in the New Testament that has a list or every list in the New Testament about elders has hospitality in that list. Job 31, 32. We're going to quote a lot from Job this morning. Job 31, 32. No stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. Now, what a place that place must have been. The one thing I always love about my, my wife's in-law's house it was just like Grand Central Station. People coming out and all the time. It was wonderful. No strangers there. Jesus himself, he identified himself as a stranger. Matthew 25, 35. And he said that one of the virtues of his people, the people who were, who were called sheep, the people who were on the right, the people who would safely enter into his heaven, was that they had meaningful, consistent hospitality. Jesus said, I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. So isn't it true that all the guests of our home should be, must be, no matter who they may be, they must be received as if Christ himself was coming over? And you ought to think that out. Point of fact, Jesus and Luke's gospel, chapter 14, can you believe I'm quoting from Luke this morning after all those months? But it's a helpful thing. Jesus said, okay, I'm going to give you the come over list. When you have a lunch and a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. Okay, you're going to get paid back for that. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, all eat people who thought to be sinners in Jesus's day and you'll be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Peter, as an apostle, told all the Christians in general, 1 Peter 4, 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling, right? Hey, guys, I have a great idea. What do you say we feed 5,000 people? 5,000 people. Well, let's just feed them, right? And they're they're, 5,000 people and just have a few fish and a few bread and people coming over to my house. And I've worked all week and it was hard and a week. and At least that's what I do. The world is filled with strangers. Why is that so? All the lonely people. All the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people. Where do they all belong? They belong in our homes. And elders, they belong in our homes. So that we might mend and help, protect and show them Christ. I have this quote I keep in my head all the time. Some things can no longer be. So that the commanded things can be. And a a lack of this kind of hospitality is a sign of selfishness, a sign of lifelessness, lovelessness, and it's a sign that an individual ought not to be shepherding the flock of God. At the same time, this person ought to be, still in verse 8, a lover of the good. Now, this phrase begins with the notion that the elder is to be a lover of good deeds. That's the best way to understand that. So if the people of God are to be zealous and hot for, if you would, or boiling over for good deeds, and they are, then it stands to reason that the elders have to be lovers and doers of good things as well. The word that Paul uses here has the idea of one who willingly... With self-denial does what is good and kind. Willingly, with self-denial does what is good and kind. Again from Job, Job 4, 3 and 4. Think how you've instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. This is a fantastic picture of what it means to be committed to the good. You want everybody in. See, this is good. You want everybody in heaven. You want everybody in church. You want everybody doing well. You want everybody safe. Everybody sound. Everybody treated the same. Everybody growing in Christ. And on some level, the elder is prepared for action to this end. He gets real grumpy privately if it's not happening. And he works just as hard as he can if it is happening. And he's thankful for it because sheep need good water and they need good grass and they need good and gentle prodding because sometimes, as you know, I bet, sheep just kind of fall over. Fat ones tip over so easily. And so what are you to do? Well, you take them to the high ground, which is the best ground for the highly nutritious and wonderfully delicious green, green grass. And it's going to be tough to reach, and the elder knows that. The pastor knows that, but he's still willing to take them there. And he's willing to take a few hits on the way there because he wants the highest good for God's people. And the only highest good, and the best grass, if you would, is in those places sometimes that are just so darn difficult to get to. And so loving the good is simply the commodity in a person's life that longs to do others good that longs to strengthen others and that longs to support others, no matter who they may be, but particularly in the context of a local church. And if you're thinking, that's a pretty big contrast to society and a society that's increasingly preoccupied with itself and so hates to do good to others. And if you're thinking about doing good, isn't Jesus Christ our best example? He always is of a lover of the good, good seeking the welfare of others regardless of what it costs him. Isn't that Jesus, good, seeking the welfare of others, regardless of what it cost him? Defender of sinners. He defended the sinners who knew themselves as such. He relieved the poor, the sick, the afflicted, the confused. Mark's gospel, it's a great gospel. Mark, Jesus is portrayed as a man on the move. He's standing up to the self-righteous, who, and he takes their finger, you know, if you would. He doesn't literally do this, but he takes their pointy finger that's pointing at everybody else, and he says, you better point that finger right back at yourself. So all their little self-righteous foolishness won't be dispensed to the common man and the common woman. Jesus Christ, a man of peace, of equality. What was Jesus' most memorable pre-cross quote? What do you want me to do for you? It's all over the Gospels. What do you want me to do for you? That's Jesus. And this man is a man who, who will do exactly what his father said to do, which is good in and of itself. And so Jesus goes to a cross and bleeds for my sin and he goes to the cross and dies for my sin. The only way that sin can be taken care of, removed, how good is that? And so Jesus takes on him what is mine and he puts on me and all Christians what is his. Jesus Christ is the quintessential lover of the good. We ought to pay attention to him. Self-control, it's our next word there. Sensible or sober is probably a better way to translate that word. It's it's only one Greek word. In fact, all these words in verse eight are essentially just one Greek word and has an idea of a sensible thinker. One you can have a discussion with and that they're very sound in judgment and they're safe in behavior. In other words, as this discussion kind of moves along, they're not argumentative, they're not combative, they're not contentious. This is a man who has command of himself this is a man who first thought is not how will this conversation affect me, but rather this is a man whose first thought, it says, how will this conversation appear to God? And so I want you to know a little about the root of this word because it makes so much sense. This is why I love the Greek language. The root word in this word is the word that we would use for diaphragm, as in our Breathing. So the, the, the word picture is someone who's steady in their breathing, you know, not huffy and puffy about things. And we, we know that. I'm sure all of us have been there from time to time where we're just can't stand it when the conversation doesn't go the way we would like it to. So this person has kind of a steady inner outlook. And so that inner outlook regulates all his outward behavior. And again, we have to look to Jesus for this example, right? Before his cross, on his cross, steady, steady, steady. Sound, sound, sound. Not one word wasted. Not one word thrown out that would hurt purposefully. It was all done right. John, uh, James Boyce points out that on the cross, and I never read this before, that he can't believe the unbelievable frequency of Jesus Christ quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, he's dying, he's on his deathbed, if you would, and the control is there, the steadiness of there, and he just keeps, out, keeps blurting out scripture. I've been, I've been at a lot of deathbeds. It's rare that I've heard something like that. Each time, then, Jesus Christ fits the scene and circumstances perfectly. And and I want you to know this. What Jesus is doing is essentially thinking theologically. He's thinking theologically about everything. And to think theologically or biblically about everything, the byproduct of that line of thinking is self-control. Why is the byproduct of that line of thinking self-control? Well, because they know their God. They know a whole lot about their God. They know him as Father. So then courage comes and wisdom comes and bravery comes and steadiness comes and self-control, the byproducts of knowing God. You want this in a sentence? Here it is. The elder is convinced on what Jesus has said so that he may be steady on what he decides. Say it again. The elder is to be convinced of what Jesus has said so that he may be steady on what he decides. Fourthly, upright. Upright, it's a funny word if you think about it, upright. Job twenty nine fourteen. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Justice was my robe and my turban. Now, what's Job saying? Well, if we're going to understand uprightness in any reasonable sense, if we're going to understand righteousness, we first have to understand that any uprightness that we have or any righteousness that we have is a given righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, Period. And equally, any uprightness we have is a particular uprightness because this uprightness is expressed in a particular way. So that if an elder is going to be upright, he, he at least has to constantly ask these two questions. And the two questions are these. These are good questions. You might want to pay attention to this. What is the good that I must love? And what is the right that I may do? Isn't that great questions? What is the good that I must love and what is the right that I may do? In other words, he, in everything, he's going to continually ask this basic question. What is the right thing to do? Not what is the convenient thing to do, not what is the most self-serving thing to do, not what meets the approval of the many, but what is the right thing to do? And only upright people will ask such upright questions. And we and we ought to remember this, so let's just pause for a second. I think you need to pause. We need to see this. There is nothing fantastically special about these qualities so far and the ones that remain. I mean, if you're really thinking about this, this is, they're pretty earthly things. There's nothing that speaks of a special breed of person. You don't have to leave the country to, you know, to find these things. or you, you don't have to leave your home or go out to some place to try to understand them or to receive them or even apply them. But what I love about this list, as hard as it might be to hear, it's pretty much bread and butter. It's milk, peanuts, chips, and fruit. It's a basic grocery list at our house. Joe, do you need anything before I go to the store? Yes, please. May I have some milk? May I have some peanuts? May I have some chips and some fruit? Basic all the time. I didn't read the rest of Job 29, but if I read the rest of Job 29, it would have said this. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. This is is what uprightness looks like. This is a biblical definition, if you would, how uprightness would work itself out in us and work itself out in the eldership, the blind, the spiritually blind, the lame, the fatherless, the stranger, victims, sinners. Everybody welcome to the table. Everybody gets good help. Everybody gets mending. People are sudden, are preoccupation. Everybody's a friend. They're sought after. They're not an inconvenience. And they're at our table and we say, hey, this might hurt a bit but it's only for your good. That's how elders are to think. I came across this story that I love reading. I happened to read it again this week. St. Cross Hospital in England at the close of the 19th century. If you passed by the hospital and you were hungry, no matter who you were, all you had to do is knock on the back door. And everybody knew that all you had to do is when you knock on that back door, they'd give you a nice, fresh loaf of bread. That's all you had to do. Knock, can I have some bread? Bam, bread. What a lovely picture of forgiveness. What a lovely picture of our master's forgiveness, of help, wisdom, generous portions. This is how Jesus operates. What do you have to do? You just have to ask. But he he was a long way off. His father saw him. And his father was filled with compassion and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed his son. He said, the son said, oh father, I've sinned against God and against you and I'm no worthy lur- lur- to be called your son. Oh, be quiet, right? Quick, 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 best robe, nice ring, good shoes, hot food, good music. Our son is back. He was lost, but now he's found. Oh, what do you say we have a big party? But, no, no buts. No buts whatsoever. He's back. And we're going to have a nice big party. We, we sing this song a lot here. All who are weary, all who are weak, come to the fountain. Dip your heart in the stream of life. Let the pain and the sorrow be washed away. And the wave of his mercy as deep cries to deep. I mean, we mean that. I know we mean it when we sing it. And all this is, is a picture of what it means to be an elder. Remember the elders of the Old Testament? selfish guys they gave all their best care to themselves and everybody saw it they had steak while everybody else was having spam and this did not yeah i don't like spam either <laughs> this did not please god he had lots of things to say about it holiness number five if we're upright concerns our dealing with others then holiness concerns our dealing with god and I want you to think about holiness. Holiness is not a bad word, young people. Listen carefully. I know sometimes when I was young, people would say, well, you're so pious. And they would say, oh, holy Joe, right? And used to, ugh. It doesn't bother me anymore. In fact, I haven't heard any, in, well, never mind. Paul had no trouble using the word holy, and we ought not to have any trouble using the word holy whatsoever. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you've been to a funeral and they were describing the person and they said that they were a holy woman or a holy man? Just think just for a minute, a holy woman or a holy man. And to some degree, our usefulness depends on holiness. Our usefulness to God depends on holiness. Psalm 84, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. However, when you think about holiness, John Owen gets it right. He says, those who seek God experience the strongest opposition. C.S. Lewis, it is when we notice the dirt that God is most present in us. Isn't that lovely? What's he saying? The closer to holiness we are, the more we see our wretchedness. The closer to holiness we are, the more we see our wretchedness. Holiness is much more than religious observances. It is much more than morality because gospel truth is only rooted, is the only root, if you would, where holiness will grow. So, holiness is is more than forsaking sin, only because sometimes when we sin and we know it, we're more concerned about the lowering of our self esteem than grieving a holy God. In other words, The only reason why I'll never do sin X, whatever sin X is, is because I just can't stand the way I would feel and the way I would look to other people. And the honor of Christ's name about our sin isn't even on the radar. Loved ones, that is unholy. That is unholy. Nevertheless, how disappointing are the days and the hours when we are unable to walk over the belly of our own lust? Holiness is a sore fight to the end. Holiness is a fight to say no to the the wrong things and yes to the right things. Question number 15, children's catechism, the yellow yellow books that are there free for us at our welcome center. This is one of my favorite questions. Question 15, can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. What do we know, adults? He sees right through me and he knows our heart but there's also a softness in this word and other times to be quite honest with you this word holiness would have been translated devoted as giving full attention to be preoccupied and to be humble enough to know that we're going to need grace to be holy because holiness is a work of God's grace Holiness, I know holiness implies repenting quickly and being humble enough to cling to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ for your standing with God and not your personal holiness. It's important that we understand that. Last word here, I think it is, yep, discipline. Discipline. And the two go together. Because without holiness and without discipline, how can an elder exhort someone to be holy and disciplined? How could they do that if they themselves are not holy and not disciplined? And an elder with an, uh, with, without self-control, I think this was John Newton, said he's easy prey for the devil. Proverbs 25 says it like this, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. And so the discipline that is referred to here is the discipline of living, This word relates to all of life and the totality of life because there's no real exception from this. Uh, Discipline is to be one of the stamps of those who lead God's people. And it is to be a stamp of God's people. So whether discipline comes by the way we care for our bodies or by the way that we keep our word, keep our appointments, be on time, the careful use of our time, the discipline of resting, the discipline of guarding our thoughts, of, of just zipping our lips of saying yes again to the right things and no to the wrong things, the discipline of manners, the discipline of not having to get everything your way all the time, the discipline of telling yourself the gospel every day so that when we're tempted to be self-righteous because we had a really self-disciplined week, we won't be a royal pain in the neck to everyone else who didn't, the discipline of not letting discipline itself become a god, so that again, you're not a royal pain in the neck to be around. Well, this is what I did this week, and I did this on Tuesday and Thursday and Friday, and you should have seen me on Saturday. We have to be very careful that we're not so disciplined that we have no time for the discipline of disciplining ourselves to tell others of their need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if they are to be saved from God's wrath. But the bottom line is that we cannot have people who are out of control. Be put in control of the Church of Jesus Christ, which leads us finally to verse nine. I need to move along quickly here. He must hold firmly; he must stick to it. The word has this idea: is here is the truth, and here is the person, and they're just like glued together. Hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. This is apostolic teaching. We mentioned this last time. There are only authorized message to the world. That's why every time in the New Testament, the message is always in the singular. The message, the truth, the faith, the word of God, singular, new covenant message, the form of teaching, Romans 6, 12, the epistles, if you want to know, what is the message? Just look at the epistles. There it is. And the reason why we have to do this, well, the reason why we have to know this truth and be holding firmly to it is not so that we can be the brightest one in the room. No, the reason there is right there in verse 9. First, so that they, we might encourage others by sound doctrine. I mean, just think about it. Encourage other people by sound doctrine? Isn't doctrine for like stuffy people, weird people like me who love to shove their noses in books? Old books at that? No, doctrine is logic on fire. Doctrine is truth. You, you tell me, you tell me what can be more encouraging to know over the long haul of our life what could be more encouraging to know that in Christ we've been seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. That we are adopted children of the almighty God of the universe and beyond, Romans 8. That because of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, everything we'll really need will really be supplied, Philippians 4.19. That I have in Christ eternal life, 6.23 of Romans in Christ, all the promises of God find their yes. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Do you have something better than that for me? Because I don't think you do. What if someone says, I'm so sad. And you say, why are you so sad? Well, because things are not going the way that I would like. What do you say? Well, you say, my dear lady, my dear lady, let me tell you about the doctrine of providence, of the sovereignty of God. Let me tell you about the doctrine of heaven, the rule of Christ in the world. Let me tell you about the doctrine of the goodness of God, that God is our father. I'm really, really worried about X. My dear young man, let me tell you about the doctrine of prayer in Jesus' name that can kill those worries. Let me tell you about the doctrine of adoption, of of Christ's rule over all things, including your worries. I'm really troubled about the future the devil, my lust, my children, my finances, the state of the world. I have no assurance. I feel that Christ has left me. I feel that the fire is gone for Christ. What do you do and what do you say? Well, what you do is open up the Bible and what you say is encourage others by sound doctrine, the foundational truths of the Bible. Now listen carefully. We're just about done. If an elder does not know the foundational truths of the Bible, then they should not be an elder. Because they're going to have to hold firmly to the truth. And if they don't know the truth, then they have nothing firmly to hold on to. So then it becomes a priority for the church to teach the leaders in the church, to teach things, to be grounded and grow up in the basics, to be grounded in doctrine, so that we have some kind, if you would, a systematic understanding of the Bible, so that you can understand the Bible in its broad strokes. You really know what redemptive history means. You can use the scriptures correctly, and so that we won't have to be people that are always learning, people who are always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Now, that's one reason why we have to hold to the doctrines firmly. But secondly, the reason why we ought to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that elders might refute those who oppose sound doctrine. The word refute is a hard word, it means to overthrow them in argument. And I understand this is very, you know, unfashionable this day. You have your belief, I have mine, you have your perspective, I have my perspective, but we can't forget that the reponents of Jesus Christ were very, very religious, but they were very, very wrong, right? Very, very religious, but very, very wrong. And Jesus did it, and the apostles did it. They warned us as false teachers, and they refuted false teachers, so then we must too. In fact, it's incumbent on us to tell people, silly people, that they're wrong, When they're wrong. So that false teachers who are scheming because they love crowds, they love money, or they have a word from the Lord, or false teachers are just plain morons, but their ego and their laziness just blinds them to the fact that they're a moron, have to be refuted with an open Bible and with sound doctrine. The Bible trusts itself, so we have to trust the Bible. And again, That is why ultimately elders and not the internet have the responsibility to answer the questions that men and women face in their daily lives in the congregation. And the Bible always says that the framework there is in the framework of the scriptures. So if they're not opening the Bible and saying, thus saith, then we ought to rethink that. And I just want to say this and we're done. If an elder or eldership is going to give themselves to this task, then they're going to have to have a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of things because this will tax your body, your mind, your soul, and your spirit if you're going to perform these at any level that is um, useful and acceptable and right. And so we need to think those things through. And that's it. Marital fidelity, family harmony, self-mastery, hospitality, a lover of the good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and discipline; These are the qualifications of eldership. And may God help us to get this right and keep getting it right until he returns or calls us home. Let's bow together now as we prepare for communion if our elders would come forward to help in the serving of communion as I pray. Father, we pray that this study, as te- tedious as it may have been, will accomplish your purposes and take root in our hearts May it continue to drive us to the Bible. We thank you for everyone here, but especially our leaders. We thank you for the way that you've gifted them, that you would help them and protect them from evil, from discouragement, from error, arrogance, and greed. That you would bless their children and their, and their marriages, Father. And we would ask that you would save West Cohasset from some of the horrible things that happen in churches In your mercy, Father, we ask that you would look upon us. Help us to hold the word tightly, correctly, for your glory. And help us now as we prepare to take from your table. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen.